In this episode of Turning the Tables, we are going to listen to two very critical perspectives on issues related to dignity and development presented at the Turning the Tables workshop that took place at the University of Ottawa on November 5th, 2019. The two speakers are Caroline Laude, Senior Policy Analyst at Indigenous Services Canada, and Nadia Abuzara, so Associate Professor at the Faculty of Social Science and the Joint Chair in Women's Studies at Carleton University and the University of Ottawa. In her presentation titled Indigenous Worldviews, Caroline Laude reflects on vital questions such as what is indigeneity? What is it like to be an Indigenous person in Canada today? What is it a reconciliation typology? And finally, what is the best way to move forward towards reconciliation between settlers and Indigenous peoples? We then listen to Nadia Abuzara giving a talk titled Perspectives in and from the Middle East, where she also constructs a deeply critical reflection and perspective on education and development in general, one that is widely relevant not only to issues related to the Middle East, but also beyond. In the aftermath of the Chicola Nation decision, there was elation within certain Indigenous communities at the possibility of what they called, quote-unquote, genuine reconciliation. The court had given access and benefits to land, so Aboriginal title for the first time in Canada's history. At the same time, the court said, however, we're giving you this, but in the event of general economic development in the national interest, we can infringe upon Aboriginal title. So when I looked at that, when it, I just said, well, that's a pretty hollow notion of reconciliation. I think I need to explore this further. So what I say is this, the argument that I make is that this hollow conception of reconciliation in which the state's sovereignty supersedes Aboriginal title and the broader interests of society supplant Indigenous jurisdiction laws and sovereignties and rights is problematic, and that's why it's a hollow conception of reconciliation. Moreover, today, as it was the last four years, the federal government's renewal and advancement of the relationship with Indigenous peoples raises the pressing issue of how to reconcile contradistinctive worldviews or life worlds with a specific focus on land, Indigenous rights, and sovereignty. The politics of recognition, which is what we sort of, that political ideology that we deal with today, tends to advance reconciliation and relationship building through a plan of economic development, rights-oriented legal strategies, treaty making, and other constructive arrangements. Whereas Indigenous peoples speak about self-determination, inherent rights, relationality to land in place as the basis for a renewed relationship. So already we can see that there's a tension between a sovereign to subject ideology of reconciliation 
and that of Indigenous relationality, where an inherent rights flow from the creator and not government laws. Rada D'Souza claims the power of rights rests in its quote unquote power of promise. Therefore, if what D'Souza is saying is true, then Canada's reconciliation agenda of quote, recognition of rights, respect, cooperation and partnership may be nothing more than empty promises. The paper that I'm gonna to read to you unfolds in three parts. First, I wanna to touch briefly on indigeneity and essentialism to set the stage. Second, I wanna identify the present state of indigeneity and indigenous rights in Canada. Third, I wanna highlight genuine reconciliation as a potential path forward for achieving transnational pluriversality. And fourth, I position ways of coexisting in the Canadian context of the rights recognition agenda as the platform for reconceptualizing pluriversality on the global stage. Okay? Let me move on. So, this is the million dollar question. What is indigeneity? And Lakatu, a Chicano activist and scholar, poses this question, what is it? Maximilian Forte challenges us to think even further than that question, and he asks, who is an Indian? For Forte, there are three possible answers. First, the term Indian can mean a state of being in the world. Second, it can be understood as a knowable and stable category. And finally, indigeneity from his perspective is something that can be quantified through a head count. And I know this very well. I have a number. I have had a number since the day of my birth. That makes me different. And they can track everything about me, everything about my colleague Tracy, who is also Indigenous, in a way that they can't track other Canadians in this country. Okay, so the club native picture is up there for a reason. My community in particular, where my family comes from, grapples with this idea of blood quantum. And no matter how often they say, oh, no, 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 we've changed our membership laws. We're not going to be colonial and use blood quantum like the federal government did. Every single time, the argument about identity and who belongs and who doesn't belong in those communities, the Mohawk communities, comes back to blood quantum. My own daughter just experienced this in Akwesasne. She's in the Indigenous Midwifery program there. And because she self-identifies as a mixed Mohawk woman, she never denies that she has mixed ancestry. That is problematic because the community that my family comes from will not accept us. I married out, I stay out. That's the policy, okay? And it's the same thing for my children. So that is the landscape of identity and probably a the nutshell of it in Canada because the community that my family comes from is very, very contentious around this issue of identity. So, you know, we wanna talk about the culture of a bad question, the example that I just gave you 
really provokes a lot of thinking around, is identity open to change? Because identity is a key component of indigeneity. Does identity stem from genetics or cultural affiliation? I mean, we have been through the gamut. People's cheekbones have been measured, their, their skulls. We have been tested in this country through the residential school systems. And so it raises a lot of questions. And for many, other, many of you, you have probably experienced something that you can relate to that's akin to our experience here in Canada. And so what I do want to say is that in terms of in, indigeneity and essentialism, it takes us to this really weird space in um, the Canadian context around linking, delinking these ideas. But you can see, if you go down the slide, these are all the different kinds of Indians <laughs> that you might find someone describing us as in this country, okay? And so to bring in the essentialism piece, what I wanna talk about is, I just wanna say, I've shared with you some thinking, but J.C. Weaver, stresses post-colonial theories, theories opposition to the existence of any real essence in a given racial ethnic category or identity. Cook Lin writes that indigenous peoples use essentialism to counteract domination and create spaces for their voices to be heard. And so the example that I gave you of the community and the issue around blood quantum, that is sort of what Cook Lin's thinking is all about. It's an example of it. Lastly, um, I think the debates around indigeneity have strong political and legal undercurrents. Indigenous identity in Canada is therefore defined in terms of rights holders and or as established under the Indian Act. There's been internalization of colonialism with my people and this has resulted in some confusion at the community level and it has resulted in community members actually following the Indian Act. So I hear conversations about, yeah, if you're not a 6'1", you're not really good enough. You're not Indian enough to be with us. So 6'1 and 6'2 conversations actually take place at my own dinner table. What Coulthard tells us is, you know, careful here. You don't want to essentialize identity and make it fixed, immutable, and universal. So he tends to uh, take an anti-essentialism perspective and stays away from locking things down in the standard politics of identity categories of race, gender, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So I've shared the good, the bad, and the ugly of where things go for us around indigeneity and the, and the um, conversations. Now I want to talk to you about what it's like today, presently in Canada. So over the past three years, I have witnessed firsthand the differing accounts of reconciliation at the individual, departmental, and whole of government levels as a public servant. What I also observed was the disparity amongst First Nation communities on whether reconciliation could be achieved through a rights recognition model or an indigenous framework and or some hybrid model of the former approaches. 
What I witnessed was something that aligned with Ovid Mercury's experience in working on indigenous issues over the years. And I had the huge um, pleasure of sitting with Ovid and having him share his insights on rights issues in Canada. And here's how he explained it to me. He said, there are three distinct schools of thought. Those First Nation communities that are comfortable with the rights recognition approach, other communities who would never accept any Government of Canada proposal, and third, the undecided communities on what is the best approach for securing their future survival. The diversity of views is what has challenged the federal government efforts in 2018-2019 and result, resulted in a failure to secure Indigenous buy-in on a rights recognition framework and the suite of proposed policy reforms concerning land. And so what's really interesting about this idea is that we, we have very different views. So here's how some of the stuff shaped up. The Indigenous grassroots movement of Idle No More and the Defenders of Land and Truth Network, in combination with active resistance by the Assembly of First Nation, signaled a growing displeasure with the rights recognition framework, okay? The proposed framework. What happened was communities became concerned with the process and timelines for overhauling the suite of policy reforms. So the Comprehensive Land Claims Agreement, the SPEC claims, the inherent rights, and the additions to reserve land policy. Secondly, trust issues arose from perceptions that government, quote unquote, is continuing its old ways. Indigenous leaders and elders interpreted gov governmental efforts as actions that threatened Indigenous self-determination and inherent rights and jurisdictions. Chief Trevor Mercury from Beaver First Nation stated, quote, the government has taken away the authority of the people, the true rights holders in Canada. They are do domesticating everything we own. They are domesticating us as each day goes by. What I see is less tolerance of what government or government colonial shape-shifting, if you will, not my words, Diagi Alfred, um, and they are seeking deeper structural changes in relation to inherent rights, jurisdiction, and land. Essentially, they want their life world respected, okay? As a result, what I've seen are different pockets of the department and the government finally acknowledging that they need to rethink how they approach land and how the government just more generally handles Indigenous affairs matters. I personally have been asked to think about what does Indigenous title land mean from an Indigenous worldview? What, is a, what does a, a third order look like? And thirdly, how can I think differently and have a different relationship concerning the Crown's fiduciary duty to Indigenous peoples in relation to oil and gas development on reserve. So these are the things that I have been challenged with to work on. So where should the government go? If we want to have a different relationship, we need to think about things very differently. So what I'm sharing with you is a bit of a reconciliation typology that um, I developed based on my research. 
So what I did was I synthesized the reconciliation discourses into the four distinct types, genuine, standalone, transitional, and assimilative. The findings indicate that reconciliation is a contested term. As I have defined it, genuine reconciliation mean, means one, it enacts an intercultural, legal, political, and epistemological change. Two, it reconstructs the structure-culture dichotomy. Three, it engages in relational responsibility and dialogue. Four, balances power. Five, values other worldviews. And six, stabilizes the culture, ecology, and economic dichotomy. If the federal government wants to move forward beyond a rights recognition understanding of reconciliation, then it must think, be, and act differently in its approach to indigeneity in Canada. So how can it do this? I would argue that first it has to adopt a practice of genuine reconciliation that's premised on the idea of coexistence arising through pluriversality and enthydecene. These two concepts help to explain and account for how to achieve genuine reconciliation in the Canadian setting. This idea of pluriversality recognizes that other cosmologies and epistemologies coexist within the local, national, and global context. An enthydecene worldview creates space for different worldviews to produce comprehensive solutions that will improve indigenous human and social conditions. Reconciliation under this guise is grounded in a philosophy of liberation and decolonization, which by their very nature are designed to push boundaries. Okay. So I'm gonna hurry up and get through the rest of it, but here's the thing that I, I will share with you. What's going on right now is that there's a big discussion about how do we talk about plurality? And what I wanna share is, you know, an observation from one of the hereditary Wet'suwet'en chiefs. And what he talks about is how do you, how do you respect Wet'suwet'en, the Wet'suwet'en life world and build it in? And he says, and there's a whole part to this, but he's talking about reconciliation. He says, what the hell did we do except be Wet'suwet'en? Not once did we break our law. They said the people arrested were being civil, civil disobedient. Well, they were being obedient to our law. And so there's this interplay around this idea of civil disobedience. And whose law are we being disobedient to? On the one hand, his people are being obedient to Wet'suwet'en law. On the other hand, Canadian law says that they are disobedient. And this is over pipeline development, I might add. Okay? So, you know, when you think about this, what it tells me is that we still very much have a dominant mode of being in this country that suppresses other indigenous life worlds. Okay? Uh, in terms of how do we get to the next stage, I have some, some ideas around, you know, the shift that needs to take place with genuine reconciliation, but I'm not going to touch on that. I'm just going to say, here are some ideas about how to go forward and or what not to do. So I'm citing Duncan Ivinson's work as an example of what Canada should not do when bringing Indigenous worldviews and rights into the global setting 
and into the Canadian and legal and political framework. His proposal fuses liberal worldviews and the indigenous worldviews together. And to me, that's extremely problematic because you can't embed one life world into another. It just doesn't work. So that's the first point. And I think the other thing that I can say is that you cannot, the hybridization of liberal democracy with indigenous normative rights cannot achieve deep structural reform by embedding one worldview into another. Federalism is a Western construct, and it's still rooted in notions of racial privilege. So think about the doctrine of discovery, for example. Therefore, political and legal subordination of indigenous rights, laws, jurisdictions, and sovereignty will continue, whether at the transnational or global levels, because they still remain subject to nation-state laws, okay? And I, we see this even with the um, international treaty agreements that Canada has entered into. Our rights are eroded through these international treaty agreements, which tells me very clearly that we don't have the right relationship yet here in Canada. Um, I don't want to carry on too much further but, you know, the big things about these agreements and the reason that I'm talking about the, these agreements in this way is so that we don't get caught in the trap of thinking that hybridization is what's going to actually work and that what we really do have are Indigenous people's best interests at heart. What I'm trying to show you is that we don't. So with these agreements, investor rights are prioritized over Indigenous rights. Foreign companies can sue the federal government for potential loss of profits if we oppose or resist development, right? Even if we transport resources and we stand in the way of that development, we will be put in jail for obeying our own laws. And it's raised the issue about consultation. Consultation with us falls at the lower end of the threshold. Not good. We have Section 35-1 rights. So it comes back to Rada D'Souza's point about the promise of rights. It's empty promises, okay? On the world stage, if you think about this, um, there's a couple of things. So this is Chief Descahey, who went to the League of Nations in 1923, and essentially what he said is, we have a treaty relationship with the Queen. It's an international treaty relationship. It's not a relationship with Canada. While he was there, he had garnered support from the League of, of Nations representatives, but what happened was that here in Canada, we had a plan. So Bing and uh, Mackenzie King, at the time, signed uh, an order in council secretly that got rid of the traditional governance system in the Haudenosaunee and instituted a band council. The RCMP were involved at this time. And to this day, it has fractured the community terribly. So some of the good things about this is that indigenous life worlds can now push us to think about sharing power differently, right? We have a history of knowing what has not worked. 
So why not entertain and open the door for other ways of thinking about things? And what do Indigenous peoples want? They want their life worlds in self-determination respected at the national and international levels instead of these notions of nation-state sovereignty. And that is highly problematic. Even the courts have said, you know what? It's a crown assertion of sovereignty. And so in my work that I do right now, I am troubling that. And I've had to tell my bosses, look, and I'm not talking about us taking ourselves to court. But here's the thing. If we only look at the black and white of law, and we don't look at the gray, then we're never going to get any further than where we are. We will continue to develop options that lock us down. So when you look for the gray, it means, what about indigenous laws and legal traditions? How do they fit? What about thinking about land differently, not in its current bundle of rights, dephysicalized form for the purpose of commodification? How about we think about it from creator title? that perspective, right? So in terms of the empire issue, you need to know that Canada is imperialist in nature. And the victims of that imperialism are indigenous peoples in this country. And so they rob, steal, or get us to sign treaty agreements that say, hey, you're giving up the land. We need to think about this relationship because imperialism exists here in Canada. It's not just Canada going outwardly as an empire, which it is. It's, in one, it's one out of the top 10 countries that make foreign investments, but it is also imperial in Canada. And so just to come back to my earlier point of view in terms of how to see reconciliation, Again, this is how the politics of recognition sees it. It's through economic development, rights-oriented legal strategies, treaty-making, and other kinds of constructive arrangements. And you will see this written in the principles document. Nobody's hiding it. It very much is liberalism at its finest, protecting capital and labor. And we experience it on a daily basis. And I think I'm gonna stop at this point um, I have other examples, but we can talk about these as part of the discussion points. We then listened to Nadia Abuzara giving a talk titled Perspectives in and from the Middle East. There is an, an article, I'm sorry I didn't, you know, draft something specifically for, for today. It's co-authored, as you can see, by the person who I consider to be uh, the leading light on Middle East issues in, um, probably in Turtle Island, but at the very least in Canada, uh, Reem Behdi, who is a professor of law in Windsor, as well as Jeremy Wildeman, who is um, a shining star about to uh, shoot into the sky for all of us to see, and Ruby and myself. And this article for me is a continuation of, and you may laugh if you wish, a paper I began writing as a master's student. And it's written, it's not meant to be an academic paper. The conversation is a venue where academics publish in, in conversational style. It's literally called the conversation. And it's a blog, 
right? It's, it's an open access blog where we're not meant to write in the style that an academic journal would be written. It is very seriously reviewed. So, you know, we went through many, many iterations of this before publication. Um, so it has many of the similarities of, of a peer-reviewed publication, but it is shorter. The length is deliberately edited down. It is pithy. It is very contemporary. So this particular article was tied to a government, government announcement that came out almost the same week. But this, as I said, it, for me at least, I, and all of us have our different moments where it began, this began while I was still a master's student and I wrote a paper that then also was an open access publication in a journal called Borderlands, which was called Why Aid for pa Peace Does Not Bring Peace. And so even before I was finished a master's degree, I was already thinking and saying, no, this is not working. And that came as a result of being someone who was steeped in development studies. So I took a high school course. I, as part of my high school experience, this was high school credit, was on a government funded, so the Canadian International Development Agency, travel to Costa Rica for six months. And even at the age of 17, I was learning why I should not be studying international development. And nevertheless, when it was time to choose which program of the ones that I had applied to and been accepted to, I would go to, I chose international development, one of only two programs in Canada that had a cooperative program that would lead you to work in internationally. And so I chose international development and I, you know, I entered into a program that would teach me all of the things that today I'm asked to teach and that I, I, I don't think I agreed with them then. I don't think I agreed with them as I taught them and I don't agree with them today. And I want to say as a preface to everything I want to say, how deeply important it has been to find a home in the city of Ottawa, a profession in the University of Ottawa, and the colleagues who I call my colleagues. So we're down to, you know, closer to 10 than 20. But all of those colleagues I have worked with and I continue to work with, I appreciate deeply. I have been welcomed. I have been invited to meet people's children, partners, and parents. I have been sponsored as a guest lecturer, not only by my colleagues, but literally by my colleagues' parents <laughs> and partners and, and so on. So I have been welcomed into a community with open arms, and I feel a part of that community. And so when I speak in such abrasive fashion about international development studies and our program in particular, I speak about something of which I am a part. And so it's not and derision to a person to my left or a person to my right, but rather it's a point of self-reflection and a point where I feel I need to be open about my self-reflection. Because I'm hoping that if I say what I'm feeling, maybe my colleagues will say similar things. And if they don't, and if they disagree, and, and most are not here to hear this, and, and that's why I feel so self-conscious, is I feel like I'm speaking in the absence of others, about others, and I don't want that to be taken in that way. But rather, I want to say I speak as if all my colleagues are in this room, and I 
I just feel like it is time to, to rethink. And we have that great privilege, it, particularly people like myself who are tenured in this institution. And we, we don't have to wait for decisions to be made by others. We can make those decisions. However, we have to believe that the need and the time is there for those decisions to be made. I hear Carolyn Laude and Tracy and other colleagues, and I want to completely transform what is today development studies at the University of Ottawa. And I, I hope that that's taken in all the best of spirits, that every program wishes to transform every so often. I came here in 2008. I was a different person. I had no children. Today I have two who can, you know, let's just say hold their weight in a room. Uh, in other words, they've matured and they've changed me. And I, I can no longer feel even comfortable using the word development. Because where I see what is called development, industrialized countries, developed countries, the only synonym I can find is theft. And I know even my own parents don't necessarily feel comfortable using the word settler, but the word I can use for myself, as indigenous as I am elsewhere, here I'd like to call myself a visitor, but I think because of what I have and what cost that came to others, I am a settler. And I wish to be an ally, but I am also a settler. And if I don't call myself that, then I am part and parcel of the denial of colonialism that allows colonialism to continue day after day after day. If I don't recognize the way violence is part of the road structure and where they go and where they don't, what they cut and what they don't, and so on, if I don't recognize that colonialism is part of the land that we're on, and then of course talk about giving it back, then I'm going to continue and reiterate the colonialism that's here. And in my courses, I do not talk about colonialism. It is not my curriculum. It is not in the title. The title of my courses is development, 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 development. I never wish to hear that word again in any course I teach. And for the past two years, I shall say this in the presence of, <laughs> of colleagues, I have openly said, and you will testify to this because many of you have been in my courses, excuse me, I'm changing the course title as we begin this course, and the word development is not in the course title, and that's how I will teach this course. And I need to tell you this on the first day because you're paying, if you're international, $70 an hour to be in this course, and if you're local, $35 an hour, and I respect that you're paying for this and, and that you should be having a large part of this, and if development is really important to you, I want you to know it's not what's going to be in this course. This course is the solidarity economy. It is not the social economy and local development in developing countries. It is the solidarity economy, and that's this course. And I, I should have perhaps been braver and said we need some undergraduate reform. I would like this course renamed as long as I'm the one teaching it, and so on and so forth. But instead, I've just taken academic freedom, and I've done this inside my course. And it has been well met. I would like to add, by students. And I feel like many of the changes that have happened to me over the past 11 years have been as a result of students. 
who I'm proud to say today work for the Council of Canadians, who have truly altered my vision of who I am and, and where I am and what my role is in that. And so our former students have erected teepees on Parliament Hill on the 150th anniversary of Settler Canada. Our graduates have stood up in the Senate and held a stop sign saying that this needs to end and change needs to happen and led the movement for youth involvement in governance and decolonization. Those people have taught me and I could name them because I think that they are giants and I feel honored to have been in a room with them. Um, I don't feel I taught them. They taught me. They taught me what mining does. They taught me what all sorts of things do, including our university. And I'm at a point now where I think that there are productive ways forward. I see some really inspiring programs around Turtle Island that we can learn from. Um, I will name one, but I'm not saying that we must undo ourselves. We must unemploy ourselves, employ new people. I mean, that would be true decolonization, so I, I would be in support of that if that were to happen. But what I am saying is that without, without changing, you know, like, how do I put this? I am not seeking to to undermine the security and stability of my colleagues. I am seeking to grow together. So when I say that there are inspiring programs elsewhere, that does not mean that I wish to end the careers or abruptly oppose the research of my colleagues. That is certainly not what I am saying. What I am saying is we can learn and we can grow and we can build on our own strengths to allow them to generate and be, be, be put forth. I have a colleague who was first hired, I, in my opinion, and she was hired before me, so I, I don't know exactly, but she goes under the umbrella of environmental development. But this is one of the leading thinkers in Ottawa and internationally recognized on labor rights one of the leading thinkers in the world on labor rights, but goes under the title of environmental development is best known for association with fish. We have not evolved as a program, as far as I can see, to embrace and accept her research shift into labor rights, modern slavery, and yet the rest of the world recognizes her as the leading actor in this, in, in terms of academics. Why can we not revisit our gamut and rethink in terms of our strengths. And I'm, so I'm not saying because I don't like the word development, therefore my colleagues should go or should change or should alter. But what I am saying is she has an incredible set of strengths that I'm not seeing harnessed in the ways that our students would love to see. And <laughs> someone's going to miss a swim lesson. So I... I think I've spoken about content and, and the, the program that I was, that I wanted to point out was called St. Mary's University Social Justice and Community Studies, where none of those course titles are othering. And this I think is the litmus test. Does the course title other? Is it about someone? And if it is, like for me, that's ditch. 
I have a, a multiple varied background. So I'm, I'm British, a, a lovely anti-colonial mother. Um, I'm Canadian, so settler Canadian. And I am, um, I am Middle Eastern. I am Palestinian. And from that varied background, I never wanted to take a course in Middle East studies because I didn't want to be taught, you know, like what are people like in the Middle East or what is government like in the Middle East? I, I just thought, like, I don't want to be taught this in a country that went to war on Iraq multiple times. I don't want to be taught this by the country that bombed Libya. I, I don't want to be taught about the Middle East here, by profs here. As much as I adore and love the profs I may have had as a student, I did not want to be taught Middle East studies here. And I also knew that it would be a space for silencing. And therefore, I thought I will be much more welcomed in a space that's going to have a discussion about geography and space and power and gender and feminism than I ever will be in a Middle East studies course, because that is not a place for a Palestinian these days. And never was. You know, I went to school in the 80s and high in public school in the 90s, and and that that was not a time, and now it's even less a time. So I the last thing I want to talk about is not content, but is style is pedagogy. It's the learning environment. More than half our courses, as far as I know, and I can be corrected on the exact number, but I can't be corrected on the fact that we deeply and heavily rely on people who have no employment stability for the teaching of our courses. And, and so we don't have time to think about content because we're struggling not only with our own institution, but we're struggling with a provincial government that is determined to see that trend worsen and that this has been at least a four decade struggle. This isn't this year, this isn't even this provincial government. For people who do research on the nature of relations in higher education, this has been well over 40 years. And I um, refer you to Jamie, I, I'll get his last name in a second. But you know, people have published three, four books on this issue. And so I totally understand we can't afford to be thinking about revamping our entire program when right now all we're thinking about is matching enough professors to students and making sure those professors aren't slapped in the face with a course that begins in seven days that has 300, well, we don't have, as far as I know, 300 students, but we'll have two sections of a course that has 180 students each. So yes, we really do have courses that essentially have 300 students, a few TAs, fewer than we had 10 years ago, fewer than we had 20 years ago, and la voila, teach, transform, make the world happen. It's not happening. And we have students now graduating saying, had I had a choice, I would not have taken this degree. And that's more, I think, in the affirmative than in the negative, I'm afraid to say. And of course, I totally understand. And it comes even from those students from a place of love that, you know, we can, we can do better and we can be better. But, you know, I'm, what I'm trying to say is this doesn't, this is not the sole responsibility and outcome of the shoulders of 10 to 12 to 15 tenure, tenure track and tenured professors. This is the outcome of a system where your only pedagogy option 
with 300 students and, you know, a, a professor who's been given the course within a very short time period who has not taught it before and has to build it up from scratch with support from colleagues, hopefully, you know, um, we have not been given a structure that allows for the kinds of pedagogies that we would all appreciate. I can tell you right now, Scantron is the way to go in a structure like that. Scantron being um, multiple choice that you fill out and it's graded by a machine. And if certain things don't happen, there's no way to regrade it by a person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It has incredible limits. Every study in the world has been done to show that this is not the way we learn. This is not healthy. This is not mentally health, you know, productivity and uh, positivity conducive. And yet this is the, the, the struggle that we face. That being said, there are ways if we were to consciously think about reform, we can reform and we can have new kinds of pedagogies. So thank you very much. The introduction to this podcast series was read by Rika Pugazi. These podcasts were recorded and produced by Radimis Saki. The production of these podcasts received funding from the Ontario Public Interest Research Group at the University of Ottawa and from Professor Sani Yaya at the School of International Development and Globalization Studies at the University of Ottawa. For details and further information, contact Rada Mizaki at rhany096 at uottawa.ca.